0: episode of the Garden DC podcast. We're going to talk all about goth gardening, what's spooky in the garden in the fall, and our guests this week are Rachel Rhodes, Emily Suzanne Zobel, and Michaela Boley of the Garden Time podcast. Welcome, ladies.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. We're happy to be here.
0: Yay. So it's a whole gang this week with four of us. <laughs> <laughs> when We have a lot to talk about and go over for the spooky garden that we're gonna talk about. But first, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Garden Time podcast and then a little bit about each of yours background before we dive into all things creepy
2: in the garden. Very cool.
0: Maybe Rachel, you wanna talk about the Garden Time
2: podcast? Sure, sure. The Garden Time podcast is a monthly podcast that covers timely garden topics, native plant of the month, bug of the month, and some quirky little feature that, that we like to do every month, too. We always have a repeat segment, um, and Michaela and Emily and I just love talking about plants. So, Cool, and that's a monthly,
0: so yeah. your latest episode uh, went up on September 8th, 2021, as we're speaking at the end of September, and that was on rain gardens. And uh, anybody anywhere can download and access. And it's time, as in the herb time, <laughs> T H Y M E, and not garden time, as on your wristwatch. Yeah,
2: you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, etc. Um, and we also have a Facebook page called Garden Time Podcast. So if you want, if you're on Facebook, you can just look us up there. And you can find our episodes or links for our episodes on there as well.
0: Great. And so the Garden Time podcast is is produced by the University of Maryland Extension. And so that website is extension.umd.edu. And we've had some Extension gardeners on the Garden DC podcast previously, as well as some University of Maryland Master Gardeners. Um, Can you tell us, our listeners, maybe we'll start with Emily, a little bit about your background and what you do at Extension?
3: Sure. So I am the Agriculture Extension Agent for Dorchester County. So I, in part, work with farmers to help make sure that, like, their fields are in good shape. I help them if they have disease issues or insect issues or if they need something verified. I also make sure that they stay on top of things like nutrient management and pesticide credits. And then I also fill the role of the home court and master gardener coordinator in my county
0: as well.
1: Emily does it all. Yeah, I was gonna say Is that it? Is
0: that it, Emily? So that's Dorchester County, Maryland. Yeah,
3: Dorchester County, Maryland. And then my background is in entomology. I have a master's degree in it. So I tend to focus a lot on bugs, hence why I do bug of a month, and then uh all things that are integrated pest management related. Awesome.
0: All right, Michaela.
1: Yeah, so I'm Michaela Boley, and I'm the Senior Agent Associate here in Talbot County, which is also on the Eastern Shore. All three of us um, are located on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, and I serve Talbot County as the Master Gardener Coordinator slash the Urban Horticulture Educator, um, and my background is mostly in horticulture, uh, but my my specialty, or what I like to think my specialty is, is native plants, and I'm, yeah. I'm pretty pretty crazy about it, so that's what I end up talking
3: a lot about. Yeah, she loves those native grasses. Don't get, her, don't get her
0: started on broom sedge, guys. She'll talk all day about broom sedge. That's right. Well, I could I can see a little witchy conversation we could have about broom sedge. Maybe. Oh, yeah. It's perfect. It's perfect for October. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and how about you, Rachel?
2: So my name is Rachel Rhodes. I'm the horticulture educator and master gardener coordinator in Queen Anne's County, Maryland. Um, and... Like Michaela, my background is in hort and environmental policy, and I like to focus my programs on vegetable gardening and our Bay Rise program. Because Queen Anne's County has so many um, shoreline acres, I really um, try to do a lot of stuff helping homeowners learn about how to protect their shoreline. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, we might have to have you come back on on another episode and talk about the BayWise Gardening Program, a little bit more in depth about how our entire region impacts the Chesapeake Bay.
2: Yeah, that'd be great.
0: All right, so our topic is vast, so we'll try to cover (laughs) as much as we can in the next 45 minutes or so, but I have to admit that Halloween is my favorite holiday and i just love the lead up to it and i love to have spooky things in the garden and not just you know what we're growing but maybe some little zombie flamingos or gnome figurines <laughs> so maybe let's start off with the the non organic things how do you decorate each of you for halloween or do you even?
2: I think we should start with Emily because yeah. she is the Halloween extraordinaire. I was going to say,
1: you, you and Emily are going to have a whole podcast about sure. Halloween, I think.
3: Sure. <laughs> We're very much kindred spirits. Now. I already I start like mid-September with decorating my front yard. So being an entomologist, spiders are sort of my jam. So I have multiple different spiders that are up in my front yard. And I actually, a few years ago took some old flamingos and made vultures by spray painting them and then putting like uh, oh, white cool. fuzz around their neck. So <laughs> okay. I leave them up. up and then it's funny cause all the Halloween stuff comes down about the week before Thanksgiving, but the vultures just get bows put around their necks and stay up all through Christmas.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Cause I, I made a vulture flamingo as well. I let a remake your yard flamingo workshop so we made oh, cool. you know, peacocks and dragons and ballerinas. And then, of course, I made a, a vulture and <laughs> with a little marabou collar around the neck. But yeah, I take it down pretty much the day after ha- the Day of the Dead because I'm like, oh maybe Uh, not so friendly (laughs) i leave mine up literally until i get the nasty
3: letter well i shouldn't say it's not too nasty the strongly worded letter from the city saying if i don't take down my decorations
0: i'm gonna get fined (laughs) (laughs) those party poopers um so speaking of your spiders and your interest in that maybe we'll jump right into some of the spiders we're seeing become active at this time in the garden. So there's those beautiful orb spiders that one of them is setting up a web right now in front of my rain barrel. Not the best place, I must say, but really dramatic and beautiful. Yeah,
3: so orb spiders are one of the main species of,
0: or groups of spiders that you guys are going to see
3: active right now. These ones are very well known to come out kind of late summer, early fall. And these are really neat because these are one of the groups that makes those very beautiful spiral webs. Like a lot of spiders sometimes will have webs, but they're a little like funky looking and stuff. These guys are typically known to have those super gorgeous, very spiral looking ones. And they tend to actually build a new web every single day. You'll find them most actively feeding on their webs and those evening hours. And then they'll hide during most of the day. If the web got too messy or dirty, they will break it down and build a brand new one. So while you might have this one hanging out by your rain barrel yesterday, um, chances are if you go back tonight
0: or tomorrow, it'll probably have found a new place to venture off. That makes me feel so much better (laughs) that if I accidentally walk through it or have to reach through to grab the watering cans that a, a new one is coming the next day and that I didn't ruin all that hard work. Yeah.
2: We have one right now um, by our farm, one of our barns, and she has the most beautiful, like, egg, little egg sack with her. Oh, yeah. And it's. And I've been telling our, our two children, like, don't mess with her, that's a mama, like, <laughs> let's leave her alone, just walk by her. My one son is so enamored with spiders, it's unreal. Well,
1: and and I know we I know the orb weaver group is is a pretty large one, and so there's a lot of different types. But I love the spiny orb weaver, which looks like mm-hmm. it belongs out of like Super Mario or something, because it's got the, <laughs> just like the name says, it's got all the spines on it, and they tend to be like bright red and black and and white. Uh, they're really really cool
3: looking. Hmm. They really are. The neat thing about them is they kind of have a unique behavior where most spiders. Will wrap up their prey and then they bite them these guys do the opposite they like chomp down inject them with their like digestive stuff and then they wrap it up it's like taking a bite out of your meal and then like wrapping it up instead of the
2: other way around <laughs> so, to like, they're, excited. Yeah, they're just gonna take it with them for later they are it's, it's like I, just snack. Gotta,
3: I gotta taste this and make sure it tastes good first
0: a little <laughs> nibble. Yeah, I guess you don't want to go waste web. It's
3: like when you tell your kids you have to taste it to make sure it's not poison. Like, if you eat, like, half their <laughs> Halloween candy, you're like, yeah, we have to make sure this peanut butter cup's not poisonous.
0: Right?
2: <laughs> I call that the mommy tax. Yeah, that works <laughs> too. Mm-hmm.
0: Aside from the orb weaver's family, so there's the wolf spider, which is so appropriately named with the, those kind of
2: hairy torso and legs. I love the wolf spider. It's one of my favorite autumn spiders because we often get calls about it being a home invader. Like they like to move in when it's a little bit warmer, but I really like them because they're not like most spiders. They don't prey using a web. They like violently hunt down their prey with their strong bodies and they have really sharp eyesight and they often are found hunting at night, so if you shine your light out at night, you'll see their little eyes gleaming back at you. And these spiders exhibit unique parenting habits, which, you know, are, is so interesting and really cool. A, wolf, a female wolf spider will carry her egg sac on her back, and she can be pretty protective of that egg sac if you, if you come up on her. And then when the eggs hatch, she'll carry her hatchlings for a few days until they're large enough to hunt on their own. And it's so cool to see in nature when you come across this, you know, one inch spider and she's got all these little babies like huddled on their backs. Mm -hmm. I love seeing that. It's it's very maternal. (laughs) It is. It is maternal for a spider to see them doing that. No, they're really cool. They're one of my favorites. (laughs) And they're not, I mean, like most people with the name, people get kind of scared of them but they're not that bad they're a cute little spider i think so Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and if you see one in your house you know just get a glass jar scoop it in and and escort it outside
2: yep no reason to harm it it's a good little spider
0: and speaking of a not so good little spider let's talk a little bit about um the black widow
1: well, so um, many of the spiders in Maryland possess venom, and, and we we get that question a lot: is what spiders are poisonous in Maryland? Well, if if you're not eating them, none of them, right? right. So venom is in venomous is what we call um, what the, when they bite you and you have a reaction to it. So the black widow is the only native Maryland spider that has that venomous reaction for people. Um, And most other Maryland spiders don't have enough venom to cause a reaction. Although you can still get an itchy bite or people can react poorly um, to spider bites. I've seen that happen before. So the black widow is not, it's not usually often found indoors. Uh, They're often found in dark, dry places. And uh, this could include old basement window wells, uh, lawn benches, porches, and they have a really um, interesting web structure that, that's almost like a funnel. Yeah. Uh,
3: would you, would you say yeah. that's right, Emily? Yeah, it's yeah. not quite as funnily as there's so there's a group of spiders called the funnel web spiders. So it's not quite that. I actually we used to find them in on the research farms under the black plastic, and they're very like half heartedly like built. They're like let's put some web over here and let's put some over here. Like they're sort mm. of very. Um,
2: clumsy maybe yeah and
3: clumsies might be the right word for it they're still cool webs by all means like but i'm gonna I, i'm gonna think every spider web's cool so i might be the wrong person to ask about but it's that. not like
2: the distinct funnel no, weaver. No. i mean like that one's really cool yeah. and the orb weaver mm-hmm. is very nice it's too. not the typical it's
3: a three-dimensional web for sure yes. i think it's yes. kind of what michaela's trying to think of
2: so think mm. of like
3: multiple clumpy webs together yeah
1: and and so the female uh, becomes mature late in the summer and fall and um then she becomes kind of confined to her web and she even though she looks really slick and really smooth uh she can be pretty clumsy walking on the flats just like emily said they're a little haphazard <laughs> interestingly enough and of course they have that jet black body uh very shiny no you know not many hairs if, if we can see them at all with the that conspicuous red hourglass shape on the belly, now, I know there is a false black widow, isn't there that has a has the um hourglass figure on its back?
3: I think so, yeah. I think, yeah. it, or it's got dots. The males have dots on them as well. I'd yeah, have to yeah. look that up. But I always sort of laugh whenever, particularly during Halloween season, when they have all this Black Widow stuff out and the hourglass is on the wrong side. I was like, oh, that's not a real Black Widow. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah, like we're critical. Wrong.
1: <laughs> we wish you would be accurate. Yes. I know. I'm
3: going to write strongly worded letters to lots of companies about how incorrect their great. spider designs are this year. <laughs> and,
1: so, and, and so the good news is that the Black Widows are not aggressive and. Uh, but just like any other animal, it will bite instinctively when it's, you know, touched or grabbed. Heaven forbid you grab it. Um, and so for this reason, you, you got to be careful working around areas where they might be, which is hard to see dark corners and places, which I don't usually reach my hand into webs without, <laughs> without looking, looking yeah. really hard. But it, it does happen.
0: Hmm. so probably a good idea to wear gloves especially if you're like cleaning out a garden shed or a wood pile or something this time of year
3: yep and that's ideal not only for spider bites but just as a general safety precaution not only Mm -hmm. does it keep like your hands and your skin well but especially places like that with rusty nails and stuff Mm -hmm. um or even in a wood pile if you're going through like wood spiders you might also find like snakes and stuff in there so just gloves could are a general good idea yeah yeah
0: prevent
1: splinters too Ooh, if you're feeling yeah, exactly.
0: yeah yeah i was gonna say and be kind to yourself and, and wear a little protection thank and you. now that you mentioned snakes maybe we'll circle back to snakes in a bit but i wanted to say thank you for pointing out the difference between poisonous and venomous and maybe let's turn to poisonous plants um, so things in our garden that might not be so good for eating.
2: I love poisonous plants.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we, we were laughing the other day because, um, pretty much unless it's identified as an edible plant, almost all plants can cause some bad indigestion or diarrhea if you yeah. consume it. So, so we're going to try and focus on plants that are super toxic because all of them have their own toxicities. Mm-hmm. really.
2: Yeah. And I, I like to focus on toxic plants because, you know, well, I'm a mother, so I'm always worried about my (laughs) child putting something in his mouth, you know, and Emily always says he'll only do it once, (laughs) but it's that one time that gives me the anxiety. You know, Um,
3: (laughs) I feel like I've changed that motto after meeting your children to say, (laughs)
2: Maybe one or maybe two not. times, maybe
3: yeah.
2: not. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it would happen a handful of times before he would be like, oh, this is a bad idea. Anyway, we digress. Um, so um, one of the poisonous plants that I always like to talk about is bone set. Um, it's a large herbace- herbaceous clump forming perennial shrub with small white flowers. And it appears in late summer, late fall And it grows in average to medium wet soil with consistent water source. It prefers full sun or part shade and can tolerate our Eastern shore soils that can be sandy and clay, you know. Um, And it was historically included as a medicinal herb um, and used in gardens because it was a folk medicine to treat cases of flu, fevers, cold, a variety of other ailments. Um, and actually, some authorities claim that it aided in healing of broken bones, but it um, it can be really quite toxic and bitter, um, and thankfully, we don't see many people eating it anymore or using it as a medicinal herb, but that, that's one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, and you would think, you know, with the name Boneset that it would have actually had some use and I do want to point out for toxic plants and plants in general that you know the old adage is the uh, dosage is what counts so if you eat a tiny little bit of a poinsettia leaf you might have a little bit of an upset stomach but if you eat a lot of a poinsettia you might need to go to the ER so
2: (laughs) I always like to tell people if If someone in your household or your pet has ingested a plant that you don't know anything about, they should seek a medical professional. This shouldn't be something that they Google or call us about. They should immediately call their doctor and be like, I think my cat ate part of my lily or, you know, I think my son, you know, ate some snake root. That might be something that they immediately call their doctor about. Yeah.
3: Please do not call the extension office when in the middle of an emergency crisis. I did have someone once call me and they're like, I'm severely allergic to bee stings and I just got stung by a bee. What do I do? And I was like, go to the hospital. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, I'm an entomologist, but I can't help with that, guys. I'm the wrong type of doctor. (laughs) And we laugh about it now. They did. They were okay. Um, Mm, I found out afterwards they were okay. They were just sort of like, um, it was didn't know what to do yeah they sort of were in shock and didn't know they didn't need an epipen or anything like that but
1: so so actually one plant one poisonous plant where um you don't want to even eat a little bit of is spotted water hemlock which uh is one of our poisonous plants and uh, it's really common out here on the eastern shore i'm not so sure about the dc area but it's one of the most violently toxic plants that grows in north america and in fact one bite of the root can kill a thousand pounds steer um so it's it's a very toxic substance wow. and, and, and you know it has the same flower as um as like carrot and Queen Anne's lace and so it, it it resembles a lot of members of the APACA family so i I could see I guess if someone was confused that it might be considered edible but like never ever 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 try it. <laughs> It's, um, it's got a toxin called cicutoxin, so it acts directly on your nervous system, and it, it is a, something that causes convulsions, and po- poisoning and, and even death can occur actually pretty quickly. Uh, and like I said, this is, this is a wetland plant, so um, that's, that's one way to kind of help identify it, but there's a lot of different kind of hemlocks and um, I just wouldn't try any of them. (laughs) And then you know what, they also have a flower very similar, and they can even get to a bigger size as elderberry, and our native elderberry does grow in wetland areas. Now that's a woody shrub as opposed Mm -hmm. to this herbaceous plant, but the flowers can look very similar. They even bloom almost at the exact same time of year. So I always tell people you really got to know your elderberry, especially if you're Uh, wild foraging or you're using um the flowers for anything Mm -hmm. so uh that's that's one
0: plant i I definitely wouldn't i would stay away from (laughs) wouldn't even touch (laughs) and that's true if it's not in your own garden and you don't have a positive id on it then you know Take some precautions or say when you're mushroom hunting, you're, you you want to go with somebody who's an expert. Exactly. Exactly, exactly.
2: I was looking at something online the other day, it was some forum and somebody was talking about a mushroom causing them like intestinal discomfort. And I was like, that's a form of toxicity. Don't eat yeah. it if it upsets your <laughs> tummy, you know, yeah. like. Yeah, I don't even go to mushrooms. Yeah, yeah me not either. No,
3: unless it's chicken of the woods, which is very easy to identify because it's big and it's bright orange and it glows in the dark. Mm-hmm. I don't play with mushroom foraging. <laughs> and I've taken several mushroom classes because it's hard to figure them out. And one, yeah, one bite tough. can kill you. They're they're really weird about and that mm-hmm. sort of things Because
0: they're just, I don't know, mushrooms and funguses are such weird organisms in general. They're just so cool. And I was going to say on the funguses, and they're such great names for some of them, you know, like they'll have Reaper or Killer or Murder in their name, which I guess is a big clue right there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a great addition to a goth garden or a Halloween garden, but yeah, nothing you would want to bring to the dinner table.
3: For sure. I think one of the prettiest mushrooms I've ever seen is one called Deadly Angel, and it's an all-white mushroom with like white gills and a white stalk, and I think even the spores are white so when you take off a mushroom we did this thing when you're trying to identify it it called spore printing and you take the cap off and you leave it on a piece of paper that's half white half black so you can see what color the spores are and this one i believe
0: has all white spores as well so it's very pretty but like very very toxic and speaking of mushrooms is there a fungus that maybe we can add to our goth garden that looks kind of cool i know there's some glow in the dark um mycelium out there that would be pretty cool if you had that in your garden to look at at night yeah.
3: so there are several kind of really cool creepy funguses your ability to kind of grow them in your garden is a little harder than say a plant because a lot of times to get a fungus to grow you're going to need whatever environment it needs so if it's a fungus that needs to grow in like a hard wood you're gonna need a dead hardwood log there for it to break down. So they can be a little tricky to kind of commercially put in your garden, but if you are hiking in the woods, there are some really cool ones that you can find. Um, One of my favorite ones is called Dead Man's Fingers. (laughs) And I'm not even gonna to attempt to do the scientific name. Michaela's the best at that, so you wanna try I can't it, I can't try yeah. it. Yeah. It's got some X's and some Y's in there, so it's out of my thing. So, Zolaria
1: polymorpha? That's
3: what it sounds like. You did what it looks what looks like. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, we're good at this. I try. Um, <laughs> we do not recommend eating this one, but they sort of start coming out um, in the early springtime and they're, they're white, but as they age, they turn to this gray crinkled texture and they tend to be like dark up at the tips, So they look like fingers and you'll find them on dead or decay, decaying and or stressed trees, specifically things like apples, crabapple, apple, pear, cherry, plum, uh, Norwegian maples and honey locusts. And we normally used to find them out in the woods on fallen trees. So it would look like there's a hand crawling out from like underneath the, the tree but they have these like finger like chubby things to it so they basically look like someone's like dead zombie hand coming out from underneath this like log
0: yeah and if if you've never seen it before in nature you know google that picture because it looks real like (laughs) you will you could swear it was a hand reaching out of the ground it's so Um, crazy how sometimes nature mimics shapes of different things and I don't know what the evolved purpose of that would be, <laughs> but something something about it attracts somebody out there. Um, so it's pretty cool. But getting back to a couple other poison plants we might find in a garden that are extremely deadly. Um, there's aconite and there's Detura. Um, So both of those are grown in ornamental gardens, but should be treated with only gloves on. You know when you are weeding around them, you should be super careful. And I think it's every part of both of these plants, from the leaves to the seeds, that are dangerous. Yeah,
1: and, and actually Datura um, belongs to the tomato family, the Solanaceae, which is called the deadly nightshade family. <laughs> so it's it's ironic. Somebody, somebody tested the limits by discovering tomatoes were super, super delicious, but like the rest of the plant is kind of toxic and the rest of the family is pretty toxic
2: yeah it is and i always like to find this one out in like farm fields and stuff like that Mm because that's where we usually see it Mm -hmm. um or you have that one random individual that's like oh i have this really cool plant and you're like oh well (laughs) let's be really careful with that (laughs) and let's get it out of your garden
1: Well, and you and you probably remember um, maybe two or three years ago, giant hogweed was making its way into the news, especially in, in the mid-Atlantic area. It was it was mm-hmm. getting a lot of attention. And I, I mean, I guess I would call it a, a toxic plant. I don't know if anybody's tried eating it, but it definitely had other side effects just because of the, the nasty sap that causes such terrible things like blindness if you yeah. get it in your eyes and uh, very, but very distinctive plant, at least, so you could identify what it is.
2: Didn't you find that on the running trail? No,
1: that was oh. spotted water hemlock. Oh, okay. Or it was, it was poison hemlock. Oh, but yeah, okay. yeah. Hmm. So,
0: yeah, and that does bring up that there are some plants that it's not the eating of them that's the issue; it's the brushing <laughs> against them. And of course, everybody's familiar with poison ivy. Um, yeah. another, know. <laughs> another reason to wear gloves in the garden yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah and some of it it's the sap when it's break it broken um as with that that one and then some of it it's because you rub against it and then you're exposed to the sunlight and that is what Uh, has the effect on your skin so if you were to you know go straight inside after brushing against it take a shower you would not have any side effect after that and like
1: I know this isn't poisonous but it's a native plant so I have to talk about it but (laughs) devil's walking stick is is such a cool like native understory tree and if you see it in the winter it looks exactly like it describes like it is not a stick I would use for walking because it is just covered in all those spiny thorns and as far as I know, it doesn't have any toxic sap qualities or anything. It's really just the the stem of the plant that's that's kind of harmful because it's spiky. But right now, it's in um, full well, not full bloom. It's in full berry mode, and mm-hmm. uh, it, it supports a really wide variety of birds. It's a really important food source, and so even though it looks kind of intimidating, um, it's actually a really beneficial plant. Very funky looking plant too. It's very cool.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm
0: so that i was going to say the native uh hardy orange ponceris with all those spikes on there and all those thorny uh bristly plants uh could be part of your goth garden so yeah. there's native of course and then there's exotic and ornamental ones um, my personal enemy in my garden is the locust tree the ones that that perform get those really long spikes We just
1: saw a video the other day where I didn't realize this, but the, the wood of black locust has like luminescence in it or it it bioluminesces in the dark or in a, in a black light. Um, which I can think of as the only probably cool thing about black locust. (laughs) Well, no, I shouldn't say it. It's a very good pollinator, um, a pollinator tree in the spring because it has that those early blooms. I know bees mm-hmm. are really
2: dependent on yeah. it.
1: But yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Those thorns are nasty.
2: Yeah. My, my biggest battle right now is with uh, white snake root, which is mm-hmm. a native um, perennial herb to our area. And it's one of those ones that just like popped up and I love it because the pollinators love it, but it's also a pretty toxic plant if you if you eat it. Um, and it was one of those in the early 1800s that actually caused milk poisoning. Um, so, you know, I try not to let my kids go with it, go around yeah. it plant, play with it. <laughs>
3: I know yeah. it's one that we keep an eye on for our dairy farmers because Especially. they are very much on top of trying to mm-hmm. keep it under control just because, yeah, even an animal... Uh, eating a little bit of it can make their milk and or meat poisonous Mm -hmm. and And that's Mm -hmm. the white snake root that's in the eupatorium family i I believe
1: it is i I know the Mm -hmm. genus name is different but i think it does belong Mm -hmm. to that group and Mm -hmm. i think a a cultivar of it is sold pretty commonly it's called like a chocolate variety yeah
0: Um, it's pretty yeah it's still
1: toxic so you know (laughs)
0: pretty but (laughs) and it is a prolific reseeder so yeah
2: yeah you're right about that yeah Yeah, Yeah.
0: especially that straight native species it's blooming all over now you can you can Mm -hmm. recognize it pretty easily
2: yeah Yeah, you know um my neighbor has some very very pretty scottish highland cows and i was over by his property line and i was like hey you have snake root (laughs) just let you know it's it's right on that fence line so you might want to go ahead and start taking care of that Mm -hmm. and you know he had no idea that he had it but it's such a it's such a nice um bloomer right now a late season nectar source for pollinators but it, Mm it can just spread pretty 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 easily
0: and I love that so many of the common names for these natives and ornamental plants kind of have kind of give you a big clue you know But also some of them have that Halloween or goth garden overlay, like, you know, toad lily, which is a perfectly beautiful plant and flower, (laughs) but uh, somehow got that spotted toad associated with it. And then, of course, there's spider wart. And as you said, uh, a few of our native ones that have spider or snake in the title. Um, Can we think of some other scary sounding plant names? But the plant isn't so scary itself.
2: Well, there's some really nice um, vegetable plants that have um, like that dark kind of purple hue that mm-hmm. that aren't scary but taste delicious. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we have like dark opal basil that is a cultivar um, and it's an annual herb. And it's a little bit stronger in taste than our normal green basil varieties, but it has those dark purple leaves and this intense, sweet, spicy flavor with these really pretty pinkish flowers.
0: Yeah, and there's so many new plants being bred, especially for the edible garden, with that dark pigment. So, you know, like there's a new indigo tomato that was introduced a couple years ago, um, and, of course, eggplant is almost yeah. that that really uh, midnight black and shininess to it. And even ornamental peppers like black pearl. That's one of my favorites. And that's just oh, yeah. That yeah. gorgeous. That's on our list, yeah, too. that's what <laughs> I so,
2: I planted um, the indigo cherry tomato like two years ago. And it's a prolific reseeder. Um, and I just ha- I have it pop up every year somewhere in my garden like a squirrel deposited a tomato here and now I have it just I have it everywhere and my husband is always like saying hey why aren't you getting rid of these and I just use them as my like hornworm tomatoes so like Mm -hmm. I'll pick the hornworms off of my good tomatoes and I'll put them on my indigos so they're kind
0: of your, your trap crop. It's yeah. That's a, that's a perfect use for a goth plant <laughs> to yeah. be used as a, a trap, a trap plant, especially if it's reseeder and a volunteer
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and mm-hmm. one that you didn't purposely plant. So try and think of some other, you know, spooky type vegetables. And of course at this time of year, people are collecting and decorating with gourds and pumpkins and different squashes and so i was reading a little bit about the pumpkins that are warty that have those like wart life like gross on them can you talk about how those gross came about and uh what the difference is between that and the regular pumpkins so
1: what what i'll say and, and before i know emily has some good information about this so we'll <laughs> dive into it but i just wanted to say that there are a ton of different pumpkin and squash varieties this that this particular vegetable group is very well known for being promiscuous. And so they will cross-pollinate <laughs> at the drop of a hat. Yeah. And, and we were realizing there are so many different kinds of cultivars and varieties, um, which is really cool. That makes it really um, interesting, very challenging for those of us who are trying to save seeds that are very specific to um, characteristics of varieties. But They do cross-pollinate and hybridize super easily, so there's an endless amount of really cool-looking squashes to get your festive gourd season on.
0: (laughs) And I'll just jump in just to say that that makes it perfect for the Halloween season because, you know, there's always the sexy version of a costume, right? So (laughs) there's, like, sexy bat. Sexy police officer, sexy nurse, sexy <laughs> so, warty pumpkin. Yeah, so I was like, well wow, pro- promiscuous, <laughs> promiscuous squash that Ooh. that could be a great, a great Halloween costume
2: out there. Oh my gosh, that's gonna be our squash. Halloween costume. We could
1: be the, we could be the three promiscuous squashes. Okay. <laughs> I think it'd be, be challenging to make the pumpkin shape a very like a, p- appealing sexy yeah. shape. <laughs> Just round. round.
3: I'm, I'm ready for it. Yeah, <laughs> That would be a fun thing to do. Um, So no, actually, surprisingly, uh, if you look in historical records, pumpkins actually used to be warty. And we actually, through the process of kind of turning them into a food source and using this ability for them to crossbreed and breeding them for, you know, that nice smooth shape and nice good flush for eating and stuff like that kind of bred the wartiness out of them. So what you have is, is you know within the past like 10 years or so you have a lot of seed companies that have been looking for something different or unique and have spent the time and energy to crossbreed it back in so uh, a lot of people will think that the warty pumpkins they're finding are caused by a disease Um, they are not there is a disease that will cause warts on your pumpkins but if you have a pumpkin that has that it's a mosaic virus that pumpkin will decompose really quickly so mm-hmm. the general warty pumpkins that you're finding at the stores and that farmers are growing are not caused by this virus. Um, they're, they've they been bred like that, basically. Um, mm. I, yeah, I can
1: think of a knucklehead, um, grizzly bear. Mm-hmm. Those are a couple of
3: varieties I've seen commercially available. Yeah, I will say most of them are hybrids, though. So if you're like me and you like taking your pumpkin seeds after you carve them and roasting them <laughs> up and you want to save some to plant... Just note that these guys are not going to plant true because they are hybrids. You may get some warty, but you may also get some smooth ones. So Hmm.
2: that's a good point. I love all the different varieties that they have now. Like Mm -hmm. even like the Cinderella pumpkins. Those are so cool. And like the different hues of greens to gray and Mm I love def- decorative gourd season.
3: <laughs> Everybody does. <laughs> I love a good white pumpkin too. Yeah. Oh, yeah when we yeah. were talking about eggplants earlier, I think if you're going to do purple eggplants in your goth garden, you should also plant the the white eggplants as well. Looks like oh, it goes. I love. They them. Sort of like
0: they have that really nice contrast as mm-hmm. well. Oh yeah, and they look exactly like egg. Like, hence the mm-hmm. word plant. <laughs> so <laughs> and they kind of do look scary out there in the garden. And, and one year I grew a black Japanese pumpkin. And that was mm-hmm. like, you know, you see some of the gray-toned ones. Well, this is like almost jet black. It was so beautiful. They don't get very big, but they're very dramatic. So mm-hmm. having that with white pumpkins would just be so cool next to each other.
3: That's neat. I'm, I'm going to totally have to cool. look that up and yeah, we'll, add yeah. that to my garden for next year.
0: <laughs> Yeah, that one is really cool. And speaking of collecting seeds, so again, you said some are hybrids and might not come true, but leaving your seed heads up in the garden, that could have a really cool, goth, you know, vintage, haunted look to your garden, leaving, you know, grasses up and kind of unkempt. But I was going to say one of my favorite seeds is the snapdragons. And most people don't take a chance to look at the little seed heads on the snapdragon, but it looks exactly like a miniature skull. And so those would be like really cool, even though they're small, maybe to collect a little bowl full of those and put out a magnifying glass for your kids or visitors to look at.
2: Yeah, we were actually talking about that too as one of our spooky little plants just because our heads look like little skulls
1: yeah and actually, well, you guys know I can't help but bring up native grasses. <laughs> yeah, so so you... grasses make awesome uh, additions to that kind of decorative garden. And in fact, there's a there's a native grass called Bushy Blue stem, and it's a and just like the name suggests, it almost looks like a Dr. Seuss character because it, it does have like the bushiest seed head, and those make really cool, kind of goofy, Fall-looking decoration.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, Isn't there a woolly one that you're talking about last episode or the episode? Oh my gosh, before?
1: there's so many. And, and actually, <laughs> well, in in the blue stem group or the andropogon group, um, that is, they're known for having these like bushy white uh, mm-hmm. seed heads. And so that's that might be what you're thinking. But be, like yeah. broom sedge is a really common. Yeah common grass, and that actually would make a great um, decorative broom, hence the name broom sedge. I think that's mm-hmm. that's what they used to use them for, but um, yeah, those grasses are all coming out really, really nicely
0: right now, too.
1: It's great. Mm-hmm. Great season for it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and you see people, you know, purchasing a bundle of corn stock, um, yep. <laughs> and putting that together, but you know, of course, you could just go in your own garden, too, and collect a bundle of, of nice ornamental grasses and tie them up with twine and make a nice little decoration with those as well. Exactly. Oh, anything tall like you know your spent milkweed and the opening up the milkweed pods that looks pretty cool and leaving those seeds strewn about almost looks like a spider web too because it has that like flossiness to them. I was trying to think of a couple other tall seed heads that look really cool like there's of course cardoon in the vegetable garden that has that spikiness and um you, you grow King's
1: lantern yep. mm-hmm. yeah that's a that's a great one and it's it's kind of orangey in color too so yeah. it's a really yes looking mm-hmm. flower and, you know yeah.
2: castor, castor plant is pretty oh, toxic yeah. as well but it has a really cool seed head that you could save from early in the season and use it as as mm-hmm. too because the seed head's pretty spiky
0: yeah it has a, those nice round balls on it and that's similar yeah. to the the one um, milkweed that forms like that, what sometimes is called a snake egg or, or those giant puffball milkweed pods are pretty cool too. Yeah,
2: that's a cool milkweed.
0: And then uh, I was thinking of all the alliums. If you saved your dried seed heads on your alliums, those are very spiky and cool looking. And, and you know, in the Dr. Seuss vein of yeah, things. That's pretty- <laughs> and and of course you can you know hit them with a little spray paint or with some metallic paint and then they'll look even cooler at nighttime um but one i was gonna when we were talking about round spiky things i was thinking about osage orange which oh, are so that. fun to collect very and have cool. a bowl of because they look like you know a bowl of green brains right there i've so heard them true.
1: called monkey brain oh yeah that's yeah true. i don't I don't yeah. know where that came from except maybe the appearance but
0: it yeah it's I think that's, I've heard kids call them snake eggs and, or sometimes they'll say the dropped walnut, you know, the, the black walnut also looks green. Like a, and they'll say it's a bowl of snake eggs or something too.
1: <laughs> and the black walnut's kind of cool too, because, well, not cool if, <laughs> if, if you park your car under it or something, but <laughs> it has that, that really black tarry substance that um, it protects the nut itself. And so you'll mm-hmm. see a lot of black walnut stains uh, on sidewalks and on the road.
3: and stuff. So fun fact, when I was in high school, I was a stream art kid and I did my entire senior art thesis using black walnuts from our backyard oh, cool. to make inks. So oh. you can take those walnut husks and soak them in like a large bucket with some rubbing alcohol and a little bit of water and you can extract that out and it makes a really beautiful ink that you can then use to, to write cool. and draw and paint with. Oh, those are really cool. Yeah. angsty. Yeah. That's <laughs> yes, for my angsty poetry that I'm going to sit and write in my golf garden. <laughs> sketches <laughs> in my garden book using my black walnut ink. And I made
2: myself. There's also a really cool um, corn called corn, um, And it originated in Peru. And you can find seeds um, at some of our rare seed dealers. Um, and it's like a dark, dark purple, almost like the um, black pearl pepper. It's on that realm of darkness. And it's used to dye and make cloth as oh, well right. as a stain. And you can make some really cool um, flour with it. Mm-hmm. Like if you grind it down it'd have that purple hue to it. It's a really mm-hmm. cool I think, plant.
1: I think that's the darkest corn color known or yes. at least mm-hmm. documented. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. It it's is. Yeah.
1: In
0: circles because you do see the blue corns, but yeah, that one is like even darker than that. And of course, popcorn is popular around Halloween mm-hmm. and this time of year as well. Yeah. So you can you can grow your own popcorn if you want to try that out.
1: And, you know, th- this might be an added bonus to try and convince people to do it. But um, I used to think that the dark purple color was just kind of like something cool. Uh, but it actually, those, those dark pigments are, are called anthocyanins. And so those are actually uh, an antioxidant that is present in the vegetables and it's responsible for the colors red purple blues and in the, the dark pur- the dark blacks that we're talking about it's also a natural food colorant but these anthocyanins have a lot of health benefits um, including antioxidant and antimicrobial activity so, you can feel free to try these varieties and say you're just being healthy because (laughs) it has, technically it has a healthier boost than some of the more traditional washed out colors like white and orange vegetables, which I, I mean, I still prefer an orange carrot, but um, the red carrots are also really cool. you don't want to try
2: the black carrot.
1: I have, it doesn't, it's not as sweet. And I think it's because of those anthocyanins just like a lot of our, our dark purple fruits, um, like chokeberry, or, yeah. Or choke, yeah, one of our one of our native shrubs, s- is so healthy that it doesn't taste good.
2: you <laughs> need like seven cups of sugar. To yeah, exactly. Sugar. You need to balance it with <laughs> sugar and
1: water. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so funny because, you know, the old expression is the darker the berry, the sweeter the fruit. And it's not. No, you're <laughs> <right. You're> <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> and there are some dark berries that or you know, like cherries and that sort of thing that as they darken are much sweeter. But it's not always the indication because there, there definitely Sweet. are some, like even as you mentioned earlier, elderberry, the mm-hmm. berry itself is, is not that tasty without some sweetening to it.
2: But elderberry jam is so delicious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so good. And so <laughs> good for you, too. Yeah,
1: I was going to say, any <laughs> jam is delicious because it's got sugar in it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: the and mom. then, well, another berry that's beautiful, of course, is beautyberry that has those great bright pu- purple tones. Oh, yes. And there's cultivars that are pink now and white. So those white berries could be really dramatic in a goth garden because that, that's such a contrast right there. Um, so I was going to turn the discussion to some of the the cool looking flowers that come in dark tones or might have foliage that's super dark black Um, so I was thinking especially of celosia where you can either have the flame flower look to it which would look like you know your garden was on fire with all those Mm -hmm. yellow orange and red flame flowers or you can have the celosia that kind of gets that same brain shape that we were talking about earlier That's my favorite that's my favorite (laughs) too
2: and you know i find a i have a really hard time finding the seed for that now and maybe it's just the places that i'm going but like i feel like five years ago i could find the big and i used to call them like the monkey brain seed head and Mm i can't find them anymore
0: yeah, I think in some heirloom seed catalogs you'll yeah. you'll still be able to find them. And definitely, if you grow it, you know, save the seeds. They they make yeah. hundreds of little seeds, and that is a good uh, warning to people. I've brought in celosia to have like a dried flower arrangement, and after it starts to dry, then all of a sudden you have thousands of little tiny black BBs all over. <laughs> yeah.
2: One of my favorite um, plants I found this year was called, it, it's an elephant ear and it's called Jumbo Di- Diamond Head. And it has these striking glossy black leaves and it's like eight foot tall mm-hmm. in a partially shaded area of my property. And it's great as one of those background plants. Um, and and I love it because it's so big. Um, and then I like to take the the leaves and make like stepping stones with them and that kind of stuff but that's a really cool one that's still pretty active right now that you could have up until you know we get a freeze and then you have Mm -hmm. to dig out the bulb because they're pretty um they're not freezing tolerant they're not cold tolerant here so Mm -hmm.
0: and you could even bring it in like overwintered as a house plant too so you can still enjoy
2: yes it would make a good container plant too Mm -hmm.
0: which does um bring us to some of our house plants like monstera or you know some of the orchids that have like the ghost names or you know there's a monkey flower orchid those are pretty rare and expensive but if you're really into collecting some of those spooky ones there's you know some that are even named after dracula that are like pitch black orchid flowers but out in the garden uh there's some dark Purple, almost black flowers. Like, of course, you can get some black cat petunias and pansies. And I was trying to think of some more that you know, like the black queen tulip, but that wouldn't, of course, be at the right time of year.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are some other like tall bearded irises that have that dark, but they're not going to be blooming right now unless you find one that's a rebloomer, mm-hmm. um, like Ghost Train or Anvil of Darkness. Um, They both have those dramatic black buds that um, open up to these ruffly dark violet to black flowers.
1: Dahlias are also, and because there are so many types of um, dahlias, but those are a really cool one for October at least because they're one of those late season bloomers and they're dramatic too. Thomas
2: Edison is my favorite Mm -hmm. dahlia and it's like the dinner plate dahlia and it has this deep purple literally dinner plate size um and it's one that I usually regularly grow in my garden great for a goth wedding it is is. and then you can have some ones that are like the anemone ones that are pretty like the crimson Mm -hmm. that would be beautiful too um yeah dahlias are a great addition
0: yeah and with that one dinner plate dahlia that's your whole bouquet you don't even need anything more than that and related to kind of to the dahlia, the marigolds, which are you know closely associated with the Day of the Dead, those are a fun one. You know, they, those are your typical Halloween orange, right? So you can make a flower crown out of them, or or a lei, or necklace, or make reset of marigolds. They're they're pretty easy to string.
3: Yeah. they're pretty
0: easy to grow too which makes them a very
3: (laughs) nice one and they're actually (laughs) one that we recommend doing companion plantings with vegetables in your garden as well so if you are planting Mm -hmm. uh some of these spooky black peppers or something like that having some of those pops of the bright orange and yellow um would be a very fun kind of like candy corn pop amongst all your black
1: oh yeah you know i just and i just bought um some a black version of nasturtiums and I didn't, yeah. I didn't grow them this year. I grew different nasturtiums, but they are still in bloom at this time of year. And they're also that, that bright orange color. And so it would be cool next year to to plant them side by side and have the orange and the black nasturtiums oh, yeah. together. They look pretty striking. Yeah,
3: I know they're not black, but I've seen the spider lilies in bloom right now. Yes. And I think they're one of my favorite like fall ones that I see. Cause they just have such a cool like shape to them so they're short-lived but I think they're really
0: cool yeah and we do have some of those late season bulbs that that pop up now like autumn crocus and even though they might not be in those dramatic tones there's there's still like that pale lavender that kind of goes along with the the halloween or this season's um type of colors and then of course there's mums (laughs) <laughs> Dare oh, we, we, yeah. we not forget the mums? Yes, and I was only going to say that you know mums are ubiquitous. However, they're easy to dye, so <laughs> and, there, and there's a such thing as floral spray. Um, so if you were really into having a bouquet of black mums, you could just hit them with a shot of, of floral spray, um, or you could like dip them in a dye too.
1: And you know what? I actually really like. Um, I mean, I like sedums when they're when they're blooming; they're very cool. But I love leaving them in the garden uh, during the winter and, and picking them when they're dry and and spray painting them and doing the same thing. They just make really cool decor later in the season.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say that those seed heads on the tall sedums are great yeah. too and collecting those. But yeah, there's a lot of things that you can hit with a a spray paint or a little shot of something just to extend the life. And I even do that with my astilbe that are long done. (laughs) But If you have some fuzzy tall astilbe and you're going to cut them back anyway, it'll be fun to stage that in a goth garden. Um, So in our last few minutes, I was going to uh, turn the conversation to maybe some spooky gardens that we visited, uh, maybe not our own gardens, but maybe an old cemetery or abandoned homestead. Have any of you been to one that you can share a story about?
1: Well, I, I can talk very quickly about, uh, at least cemetery gardens and some of the significance of the trees that are planted in those cemeteries. So, sure. um, one one thing that's really representative of a tree in a cemetery is the yew, uh, and this is known for their ability to thrive in a variety of soil conditions and live for a very long time. And this is a tradition that was uh, brought over from Europe. So you'll still see, uh, especially in a lot of the older cemeteries um, on the East Coast, you'll see a lot of yew trees, a lot of large yew trees, um, and they they just are kind of like this pillar of of being a cemetery representative. Ironically, you know, all parts of the U are also very toxic. Uh, And so, and some, some people thought actually they would be planted to try and keep livestock out of uh, feeding in cemeteries and keep them out of cemeteries in general. Um, So this is kind of interesting. It, It has no pun intended. It has roots in the history of pagan and Christian storytelling. So it kind of has this representation of um, way, way back in history. So it, it's kind of a cool thing to see. We actually have two yew trees here in Talbot County in an old cemetery, and they're thought to be called what's called trees of energy or healing trees. And, um, and it's an old folklore it's kind of similar to Reiki. If you put your hands close to the trunks of these trees, you're supposed to be able to feel the energy and the spirits of the dead um, in, in a positive way. I know it sounds kind of spooky, but in a positive way, it's supposed to come.
2: Wait a minute, is this like Outlander? Am I going to be transported would <laughs> You, <laughs> Don't get, you
3: transport. would be running around those trees. and like, am I touching them enough?
2: Am I touching them enough? <laughs> am I going to Scotland today? Am I going to yeah. Am
3: I a yeah. Scottish man? <laughs>
2: And that, but that is a
0: cool um, touchstone even to, you Mm -hmm. know, some of our ancestors and and what they experienced and and the spirits that might exist in some of our old growth trees as well. So if you find a a really nice big old tree that's been there for over a century, you can think about some of the history that that tree has witnessed there. Yeah. Um, and speaking in cemetery gardens, that's a previous guest on the Garden DC podcast, Connie Hilker, spoke about roses um, that are found at abandoned homesteads and cemeteries. Um, so, uh, blood red roses would be a great addition, of course, to a goth garden. And some of those antique and heirloom roses that could be rescued from some of those sites would be cool as well.
2: Yeah, that would be a great addition. I love to visit old cemeteries. Like, Mm -hmm. it's one of my, it's very peaceful, quiet. Mm I don't have anybody talking to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And
0: they're, and they, you know, were the original parks for a lot of the urban areas where the only green space or open space was the cemetery where you went. So. It's a great place to to commune with your ancestors or to spend the Day of the Dead, of course, as is tradition. And we said we would circle back to snakes and maybe some of the other spooky creatures that inhabit our gardens. And we will finish up with those. So I was particularly thinking of crows um, because I'm trying to make friends with one of the crows that lives in my neighborhood. And I've already named him Fenton. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I've got him partially food trained. He'll, he'll come if I put out a little bit of dog kibble um, on my driveway. So he'll come for that. He's not tamed yet, but but I'm trying. So I was going to say there's a lot of creatures out there that look scary, but that are actually your garden friend. And one of the top ones I was thinking of besides crows are black rat snakes. Yeah, um, I love
2: those.
3: So snakes in general are great animal to have in your garden not only do they provide a really great way to kind of control some of our pest species specifically things like rodents but they're kind of a sign of a really good healthy ecosystem and we would recommend uh, rather than having any of us talk about them because none of us are snake experts that you check out our June episode from this year so it would be 2021 where we had Carrie Carrie Wickstead Wickstead from uh, Maryland Department of Natural Resources come and talk to us about Maryland wildlife, and we got into so many great stories about snakes and possums and all sorts of other things Mm -hmm. that you can find in your garden that are a little bit off the beaten path. Mm -hmm. I think it's worth mentioning. You know, um, people people are afraid
1: of snakes, and, and I I understand that they're not the most cuddly creatures. But they also don't really want to be in your house or they in your garage. What what happens this time of year with a lot of critters in general is they're starting to seek shelter as we get into colder weather. And so, um, you know, to, it's hard. It's easy to, for me to say, don't be alarmed. But, you know, for the most part, they're not looking to go after you or your pets or anything. They're just they're just looking for a place to kind of hunker down for the winter. Um, yeah. So, you yeah. know. Yeah. They're, they're far more beneficial than
3: not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we talked about kind of just catching that spider and putting it outside. It's the same thing here. If you happen to find a flat rat, a black rat snake that's made its way into your garage, you know, you can take a broom and kind of carefully sweep it back out and just make sure your garage door is all the way down.
0: So true. And I, and I hear from people that are having more encounters with raccoons and possums mm. in their garden, like they'll open up a trash can and see little eyes peeking back <laughs> at them. <laughs> and, and they're not trying to encounter you. They're there for the food and just slowly tip over the trash can and let them out. <laughs> they've gotten themselves stuck probably. And same thing if they if they've gotten into an interior space, they're probably trying to find an exit.
3: So I will say, I think one great addition to a goth garden would be some overturned old clay pots with holes in them for toad and frog houses. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think those would be a great one, um, particularly if you stick them in some place that's like mildly shady because they do tend to do like that, like, shady, humid kind of Mm -hmm. environment. But Mm -hmm. I think that's a fun thing that you can add to bring some of this lesser charismatic wildlife into your garden.
0: (laughs) I like that lesser charismatic. Yeah. <laughs> so well, those would be the things that when you turn over an old log or a big stone, <laughs> yeah, they're still
3: they're... very charismatic. They're still very cute and fun, mm-hmm. but they're not. You know, it's not a monarch butterfly. It's not a. <laughs> it's not a bluebird or a cardinal. So they're not quite as noticeable unless you're down there looking for them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they still have an ecological benefit. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and speaking of monarchs, they are in that classic halloween palette so that's that's a great addition if you can still attract as many monarchs to your garden as possible to have for your halloween or goth garden and of cool. course the black swallowtail and and lots of moss so you know cool. have, attracting that luna moth or some of our native moss species would definitely play into that goth garden or, or halloween decor
1: Well, and and a good little PSA since we're on that topic is, um, you know, a lot of people this time of year are frantically trying to get rid of the leaves on their property or chop them up. And really uh, the best benefit to attracting, um, especially the the silk moth family, is leaving those leaves whole and leaving them on the property and kind of intact because that's where they will pupate and that's where they're Mm -hmm. going to overwinter. So if we hope to see more of those, which I hope we do because those silk moths are like the coolest things oh, on the so planet. So
2: beautiful.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, of course the message, leave the leaves. That's <laughs> that's partially uh, what, what they're referring to is, mm-hmm. is that habitat.
0: Yeah. And they're so cool. And that's such a great tip. And all you have to do is pile up your leaves. If you don't want them, you know, smothering a garden bed or uh, on your lawn, just, you know, rake them up and push them to the side, but don't chop them up and don't send them out with your landscape waste yeah and
1: they decompose pretty quickly i've never had a leaf pile that got so large i couldn't handle it in a in a month or two you know mm-hmm.
0: yeah 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 and decompose is what we're after in the goth garden right
2: <laughs>
1: more,
0: more creepy and more centipedes too by the way yeah, yeah. composers <laughs> yeah and so you can put your mulch pile or your compost pile on feature and have have a bunch of things displayed in there that would look cool and maybe you could even stick a gravestone on, on top of it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> with something emerging from it. Well, thank you all. Um in our last minute left, um can you tell our listeners how they could get in touch with you?
3: Yeah, so we uh you can again you can find our podcast, the Garden Time podcast on pretty much any place podcasts are found. So we are on Stitcher's, iTunes, most of those, you can just do a search for us and we'll pop up. You can find us on our Facebook page. And then we also have an email address, which is umegardenpodcast at gmail.com. So you can shoot us an email with any garden questions you have, and we're happy to answer them. Um, we tend to answer the ones that we think are really timely on air, aka on our podcast. Um, and we should actually be dropping our October podcast in the next week or so and we did one uh we tend to like to do october on spooky plants and this year we mixed it up by doing carnivorous plants
1: yeah so we have a really Mm -hmm. cool episode coming up Mm -hmm. yeah
0: it's one of my favorites that we've done yeah (laughs) all right we'll have to check that out so thank you so much rachel emily and michaela and we'll definitely have to tune in for those carnivorous plants to add a few of those to our goth garden as well That's right. And thank you for having us. Yes. Yes. Thanks.
1: Yeah. It was really nice talking with you.
0: Turtlehead plant profile. Turtlehead, Chelone glabra and Chelone lyonii, are native perennials to the eastern seaboard of the United States. The common name describes the interesting flower shape, which resembles that of a turtle's beak. They are hardy to USDA zones three to eight. Turtlehead prefer moist, rich soils in full sun to part shade. They need minimal care, but appreciate an occasional top dressing with leaf compost. You can also pinch them back in the late spring if the growth is too tall and leggy. The plants spread slowly by rhizomes and eventually form large clumps. You can propagate them by division, cuttings or seed. Chiloni glabra has white flowers, sometimes with a pink tinge. It blooms from August through October. Chiloni glabra is a larval host and nectar source for the Baltimore checkerspot butterfly. Chelone lyonii has pink flowers and is in bloom a bit earlier in the season than Chiloni glabra. A popular cultivar of Chiloni lyonii is hot lips, which is a deeper pink flower than the straight species with bronze green foliage and red stems. For more about growing turtle heads, see our going native column in the September 2018 issue of the Washington Gardener magazine. What's new in the garden? Well, Toad lily or Triceratus are blooming away in my fall garden. I have several clumps of them, a few different varieties around my gazebo. They love that part shade to shade situation and a little bit of wet feet, but not too moist soil. And I just love their tiny little purple flowers, sometimes a little bit more on the white side with speckles, sometimes a little bit more on the lavender side, but they remind me of beautiful orchids that are actually hardy. So a great plant to have in the fall garden. Over at the community garden plot, our lettuce seedlings are starting to come in and The tomatoes and peppers are still chugging along, but starting to slow down because the nights are cooling off and the days are getting shorter. In the local gardening world, a few events I want to bring your attention to. One is a talk I'm giving for Homestead Gardens on Tuesday, October 5th at 7 p.m., This one is taking place online via Zoom, and you can sign up for free at homesteadgardens.com under the Upcoming Events tab. It will be all about finding healing and solace, peace, stress relief in the garden, indoors and out, and that is to commemorate Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, Another event that you should be aware of, uh, American Irish Society's local chapters, Francis Scott Key, Society of Region 4 is having their regional meeting for fall in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Uh, Another local plant society, the Daylily Society Region 3, is having their annual Lily Hemmer event, and that's outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and that is open for registration right now. You can just go to ahsregion3.org and check that out. Um, Downtown in D.C., Tudor Place in Georgetown has extended their hours for fall. So now they are open Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays noon to four. Um, So go on by. The grounds are looking beautiful this time of year. And another note for Tudor Place, if you go to TudorPlace.org, you can sign up for a free landmark lecture on the Oak Hill Cemetery. This lecture is on October 19th at 6.30 p.m., And it's all about that beautiful cemetery that sits right above Georgetown. And we wrote it up previously in the Washington Gardener magazine. So you can check out our back issue on cemetery gardens. But this historic cemetery is really fascinating and there are 20,000 Oak Hill Internments, some of the most notable people locally in arts, politics, government, law, military, and business. So this is a fascinating talk that you won't want to miss. Happy gardening! You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDCGardener, on Instagram at WDCGardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.